today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. Give us ears to hear your truth and eyes to see the needs around us as we draw. I want to know that when I stand before him, he says, yes, I know this one. I know this one. But for Antipas, apparently he wasn't huge in the culture. We don't read anything else about him. Perhaps he wasn't even huge in the church. We don't read anything about him in any of the letters to any of the churches in the book of Acts or anything. We have this one little notice of him, that he stood strong enough for Christ, that even when his life was on the line, he stood And he was faithful even to the end. He stood for Jesus in the midst of that perverse city. And his name is now forever declared as a faithful witness. When we get to heaven, don't we want to hear, Well done, good and faithful servant? There are scriptures that warn us about God saying he never knew us. Pastor David wants us to know that we know that we know. Being a Sunday Christian is really riding the line. It's like doing the absolute minimum required to pass go. The Lord wants an intimate, loving relationship with us that isn't forced. He wants our all. Serving Him isn't without benefit. We know He showers blessings on those who serve. Well, let's join Pastor David in the book of Revelation chapter 2 with today's edition of The Open Word. As we re- I don't know about you, but uh, as, as well, I do know about you because you're not that much different than me. But as I read this word, guess what? All of a sudden, I see myself in reality. I see the weaknesses of my own flesh. I see uh, the shortcomings of my own life. See, I can look at myself in a mirror, and I can look fairly well. I can I can look good, and I can I can pat myself on the back and say what a great job that I'm doing. But when I look at myself through the Word of God, suddenly the Word of God reveals something about me that I don't necessarily want to look at. Suddenly it reveals those areas in my life that I'm very selfish, that I'm very prideful. That, I, that I'm very uh, uh, focused on the things of the world rather than the things of God. And when I read this word, it just pierces right into me. That's why a lot of times we can we can open up the word and we can we can preach the word and share it, and all of a sudden somebody comes up to me afterwards and says, "Has my wife been talking to you?" You know, no, but God's word has. And, you know, and it's hit about a dozen of us all in the same way. Why? Because it's sharp and it pierces us. It goes to the very core of who we are. Uh, still in Hebrews, it says there's, there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. When we Allow the word of God, that sharp two-edged sword, to pierce into the core of who we really are. It's, it's like open surgery. It's just opening us wide open. And within that, we see the, the grossness. We see the, 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 the disease. We see the, the, the malformations of our life. And we understand, Lord, 
how much I need your healing work within my life, how much I need your restorative work within my life, how much I need your spirit to give life because there's areas and parts of my life that are so dead. That's why sometimes Christians even have a hard time reading this word. Why? Because it penetrates our heart. But beloved, it's a good penetration. The word of God reveals the truth to us and we're called to be in that word and allow that word to do the surgery that it's needed in our lives. That two-edged sword, you gotta understand that in this, in this culture, to say that that two-edged sword was coming out of his mouth or that the word of God is a two-edged sword, the two-edged sword was like the automatic weapon of the day, okay? You know, they, they didn't have automatic weapons like we do. But if you had a two-edged sword, that was a pretty powerful weapon, very lethal. It was able to strike both coming and going, forward and backwards, up and down, man, just any way you failed that thing. It was it could cut and it could do damage. And uh, that's the strength of it. That's the power. And that's the fearful thing about it too. Because somebody come at you with a two-edged sword, uh, you know, something's going to get hurt at that point in time. Something's going to, you know, there's going to be some business done with that. And so the one here who comes, who has the sharp two-edged sword, comes up and speaks to the church there at Pergamos in verse 13. He says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And again, just as the church in Smyrna, Jesus was aware of their works. He was aware that this church was doing works and the way that it's presented, it's understood that these works themselves, they were, they were good works. They were, they were right works. They were the things that they needed to be doing. But just as it is for you and me today, works in and of themselves, even good works are never the intended end of things. You understand what I said? That even good works are not the intended end of things. The intended end of things is our relationship with him. Because you see, we can do a whole lot of good works and never have that relationship right. And I believe that that's probably what's going on in many of these churches, even as Jesus says, oh, I know your works. I know your works. Even when he gets to the church of Laodicea, he says, I know your works, but I also know that you're neither hot nor cold. You see, it's not just the end game of doing the right thing. It's doing the right thing for the right purpose and the right heart and the right attitude in mind. Jesus knew that they were able to do this work even in the midst of the bad location, even in the midst of that sinful culture that they were in. Jesus knew where they dwelt. And when we read this phrase where where Satan's throne is, it's kind of difficult to give a 100% understanding or identity of, of really what that means. Some say that it's because the temple of Zeus was also located, and part of the temple of Zeus, there was a throne that was there in that temple that is supposed to be the throne of Zeus, and that they uh, that really is kind of referring to that. Uh, others speak of the simple fact that they were located in the world, and, and the world, Satan's throne, is located in this world. He's the prince of this world, and perhaps just because they're there in the world. Whatever the exact interpretation or understanding of that, the understanding was is that they were in the middle of a stronghold of evil, the middle of a stronghold of evil. 
Jesus brings this out again at the end of the verse. Again, he says that they live where, where Satan dwells. And whatever the exact case, theirs was the task. Theirs was the, the, the call to live their Christian life, live their Christian walk, live their Christian witness in the middle of an absolutely corrupt culture. The fact is, there's some places in the world that's it's easier to live the Christian life than others. Amen? I don't know if you've noticed that or not. Uh, you know, and I know we've got a lot of uh, winter visitors with us, and uh, I, I don't know what it's like where, where you come from. Is it easier to live a, a Christian life in Idaho than it is in Montana? Or is it easier to live as a Christian in Canada than it is in Washington or Oregon? Is it easier to live as a, as a Christian in, in one place? Well, maybe, maybe in some ways it is, but there is no paradise here on earth. I don't know if you've caught that or not. Uh, paradise is no longer here on earth. As good as it might be, as good and as nice as your hometown might be, the fact is, is evil still dwells there. Amen? The fact is, is just, just about every place. But there are some places that it's a little bit easier to live. I know that there are some places, even in our country, it just seems like the culture of the town, the culture of the people, is just more conducive to, again, to, to live a Christian life. And I know our, our, our Midwest area of our, of our nation seems to be a whole lot easier to live as a Christian there than, say, it would in, uh, in San Francisco. Uh, we lived in Las Vegas for a while. We lived there for about um, about a year and a half in Las Vegas. That's just a bizarre place uh, in case you've never lived there. You know, people talk about the wickedness of Las Vegas, and absolutely it is. I mean, it's on the billboards, wicked. It's on the TVs, wicked. It's in the grocery stores, wicked. You go into the grocery stores, and they've got lines and lines of slot machines, and you've got, you know, these... Uh, Pardon the expression, ladies, you got these little old ladies who just got their check and they're sitting there, they've cashed the thing at the groceries, you know, at the cashier and they're over there playing, trying to double or nothing their money for the week. And you think, wow, really? But that's not the depth of the wickedness. All you got to do is drive around and all of a sudden you see it advertised and you see it on taxi cabs advertised and you see shows that are being advertised and you see all of these things, just the wickedness that's there. But you know what? There were some powerful Christians in Las Vegas and, and that's what blessed us. While we were there, we, we had one of the guys at our church that actually worked at one of the casinos. He was a doorman at a casino. And you think, how in the world can you be a doorman at a, at a casino? I thought you were a Christian. Because he was a Christian. And he worked as a doorman. That's how he could do it. And he lived his life as a believer. And he was very vocal in his life as a believer. In that culture, he was, had a job at a place that people were coming in there and going out of there all hours of the day and night, absolutely empty, absolutely empty. And yet he knew that in Christ was the answer that these had. The people that he worked with, he was able to share his testimony. He was able to share the hope that was within him with these people. Pergamos was a place that was because of the culture. It was difficult. I know that there are some industries, there's some jobs 
that, that some of you may have had or maybe you have right now and it's difficult to be a Christian within the industry or the occupation. It's difficult to take a stand for Christ because of the vileness of the nature of the business. And I worked construction for most of my adult life and I used to talk about, man, how, how vile uh, it was in construction until some lady talked to me and says, you think it's vile being in construction? You ought to be in the office where I work. And again, just the all the affairs and all the discussion and all the details and everything, the hatred and people stepping over one another, one another and all of this. She says, no, you're not unique on that. And I got to thinking, no, because you know what? People is people. And outside of Christ, people are lost. And they, they are in desperate need of a savior. And there's not one occupation that's much better than another one in that case. Uh, of course, you're a pastor, and hopefully uh, you, you don't have that same problem there. Uh, law enforcement, a rough, rough place to be as a believer and to stand strong. Why? Because you've got you've to be tough, and you've got to be able to stand against all of these things. Uh, construction trades, entertainment industry. Uh, can you imagine being a Christian and, and having a job working on Broadway? Where just the, the vileness, the homosexuality, all of these things that are going on there, continually just the loose morals that are, how do you stand for Christ in the midst of that? But you know what? We need men and women in Christ, in every industry, in every occupation. We need Storm and Normans, the anti-Mormon Dorman Foremans. We need those guys. We need guys in the entertainment industry and women in the entertainment industry that are willing to stand for Christ, that aren't allowing themselves to be pulled into, again, just the, the vileness and the profanity of the rest of the world. Rather than be in an office situation that you're in or, or uh, driving a truck or driving nails, whatever the case is, to be able to stand for Christ in whatever situation you're in, how greatly we need that. For the church at Pergamos, they were surrounded by temptation, wickedness, persecution, and yet Jesus recognized that in the midst of that, they were able to hold fast to his name, and they did not deny his faith even in the days in which Antipas, his faithful martyr, who was killed among them, where Satan dwells. So my question to you this evening is, how strong is your ability to be able to stand firm? All throughout the New Testament, all throughout the writings to the churches, I don't know if you've stopped and paused on this, but it's an interesting study to do sometime. Just do a word search for strong or bold or stand or firm in the New Testament. And over and over and over again, the church is called to stand, to stand by their faith, to stand even when in jeopardy, stand fast in the faith, to be brave, to be strong, to stand firm, to stand against the wiles of the devil, to stand fast in one spirit and one mind, strive together for the faith of the gospel, stand perfect and complete in all the will of God, stand fast in the Lord. We see this over and over and over and over again within the New Testament. Why do you think, and you're my Wednesday night crowd, you can respond back to me, why do you think the writers of the New Testament felt it was so important to repeat that over and over and over again? So we don't forget because it was important, because every one of us are apt to stumble. 
because the world is pushing so, so hard. Every way that we turn, every way that we turn. Doesn't the word says, hey, be careful thinking you stand, lest you fall, lest you fall. Man, because the world is pushing against us. And that's why it's good to have brother and sister together, brothers coming together, iron sharpening iron. Again, lifting up, you know, those feeble hands, strengthening those, those, those feeble knees, encouraging one another. Those of you who are spiritual, if you find your brother caught in a sin, to come and lift them up and to strengthen them, encourage them. Why? Because, beloved, that's the world that we're in. And should the Lord tarry, it's going to get harder and harder and harder to be able to stand and to stand strong, to stand firm, to stand fast, to stand faithful and believe that God is going to do his work even though all the circumstances around you and all the world around you is yelling, it ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. But God says, stand, stand, stand. Those that wait on the Lord, they'll renew their strength. Amen. Mount up with wings like eagles. That's what we need to do. We need to be willing to wait. We need to be willing to stand, even in the midst of a corrupt and a perverse and a vile culture. Because again, beloved, as I read my Bible, it keeps telling me that in the last days, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. Jesus takes notice when you and I are able to stand strong in the midst of all of these temptations. He takes notice when we're able to stand in the midst of all the allurements of of the world, when the world is pulling every way, when the world is filled with wickedness, when there's darkness all around us, that we're able to stand or we're able to keep focused on the reality of the truth. And for Pergamos, the persecution had gotten so intense that at least one of them had been martyred for their faith. we, We read this and it talks about Antipas, who was my faithful martyr. Now, I don't know if there were other martyrs at Pergamos or if Antipas was one particular guy who was able to stand very strong uh, uh, during a very particular time. We just don't have that information. The information we have on Antipas is exactly what you read right here. He was a man who stood. He was a faithful martyr. He was killed among them where Satan dwells. We don't know a whole lot about him, but you know what? The testimony of Antipas was sufficient that Jesus remembers his name. Jesus remembers his name. And isn't that enough for you? I want Jesus to remember my name. I want to know that when I stand before him, he says, yes, I know this one. I know this one. But for Antipas... Apparently, he wasn't huge in the culture. We don't read anything else about him. Perhaps he wasn't even huge in the church. We don't read anything about him in any of the letters to any of the churches in the book of Acts or anything. We have this one little notice of him, that he stood strong enough for Christ, that even when his life was on the line, he stood And he was faithful even to the end. He stood for Jesus in the midst of that perverse city. And his name is now forever declared as a faithful witness. Jesus moves on now into the areas of concern that he has for this church of Pergamos. These these complaints, these, these concerns, not only about the city and the culture, but they're directly related to the individuals, to, to the happenings uh, within the church there in Pergamos. Jesus writes in verse 14, he says, 
I have a few things against you. He says to the church, I've, I've got a few things against you. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but man, that, that's kind of a heavy thing. Uh, when you really stop and pause to think that Jesus would come to us as a church and say, Hey, yeah, I see you're doing this. I say, Hey, you got a radio station. Hey, great. That's fine. But you know what? I got a few things against you. Suddenly everything else kind of takes second place, doesn't it? Suddenly, okay, now you got my attention. You've got a few things against me. What are the few things that he's got against him? He says, <clears throat> because you have there, within their church, within the, the body of believers, this isn't about the city, this is about the church. Jesus knew that the culture was wicked. He knew that the culture was vile. But now he's talking about the church, because within the church, you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. This whole idea of the doctrine of Balaam, it's kind of interesting. We're also in Second Peter right now on Sundays, and we're going to be getting into that this week and next week, uh, this whole idea of Balaam. Uh, but the whole idea of the doctrine of Balaam, it comes actually from the, from the book of Numbers in Numbers chapter 22, 23, 24, 25. And in essence, Balaam was a, a, a prophet and Balak, uh, the king of Moab saw the children of Israel coming and, and moving out of uh, Egypt and heading toward the promised land. And, and Balak comes to Balaam or sends for him and says, Hey, listen, I'll, I'll pay you really good if you'll come and prophesy against these people of Israel. And Balaam was a prophet for hire. And, and again, it's, it's a weird understanding when you think that, uh, he could speak for God, but at the same time, he was a prophet for hire. And you think it's weird until you look at some of the pulpits of today, but that's a whole other area. Uh, we, so he calls Balaam and Balaam comes and he goes to prophesy against the people of Israel. And all of a sudden God won't let him give up negative prophecy. He blesses them instead, and Balak goes, hey, what, what are you doing? I've, I, I've paid you to come and, 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 and curse these people, and now you've blessed them. He says, sorry, man, I, I, I tried. I tried to do it, but let's try it again. Let's try it again. And so, you know, they built another altar. They built another sacrifice, and Balak pays him some more money, and, and Balaam comes up, and he goes, gets ready to curse them, and God gives him words of blessing for them again. And so Balak, the king of Moab, he's about to pull his hair out. And he'd say, no, no, you can't do that. Don't do that. So a third time they do it. And Balaam, in essence, says, hey, you know, I don't know what I can do. I can't do that. Uh, Lord, what am I going to do? And the Lord says, well, go on. Just go do what you're going to do. So Balaam gets on his little donkey, and you know the story. He's riding along. He's getting ready. He's going to go and curse them. All of a sudden, the donkey stops, and Balaam says, come on, get moving. He starts beating on his donkey because his donkey won't move because the donkey is smarter than Balaam is. Okay, He has more spiritual discernment. Uh, you know, the, the jackass has more spiritual discernment than the, than the prophet, okay? And that happens at times, too. But anyway, uh, what happens is, is his donkey sees this angel. And the angel is getting ready to, he would have killed Balaam. But the donkey stops, and so we find out that whole story, and on it goes. So Balaam can't curse Israel. But we find out later that what he does is he tells Balak, hey, I can't curse them, but I can tell you the weakness of the people of Israel. 
The weakness of the people of Israel is get your women to get involved in their lives. And through your women, introduce to them not only the sexual immorality, but also introduce to them to the pagan worship. We've come to the end of our time together for today. But if you're not ready to be done yet, you can find additional messages from The Open Word. Pastor David is here to share how you can continue listening. Hey, thanks, Chris. We love getting the Word of God out to as many people as possible. All the teachings you hear on The Open Word have been preserved on our website. You're welcome to access them. Visit theopenword.com to listen to or download the messages God has supplied from His Word. That website, again, is theopenword.com. Or you can search for The Open Word Podcast on iTunes and subscribe for free. I'd like to encourage you to take these messages with you on the go. You never know when you'll have a moment of peace in your day. So why not fill it with God's Word? I hope you continue to study the Bible and that it continues to bless you and fill you with His joy. Thanks, Pastor David. We're so glad these resources are available to us whenever we want them. The book of Revelation is so often shrouded in mystery with its outlandish pictures of winged creatures by the throne of God and roaming the earth. As we continue to study, though, we'll be able to discern how these pictures all point to the one spotless lamb who conquered all through laying down his life. If you'd like to know more about Jesus, the lamb, give us a call at 520-836-9676. That's 520-836-9676. We'd love to share the greatest story with you, the one where God came down to earth to join in a relationship with us. That's all for today, but join us next time right here on The Open Word.